Book University is an experiment in slow learning. It's a question: Can we use our ideas, skills, knowledge to come closer together as individuals? The Fokyu talks are a way for neighbors to share what they know with each other. Tune in every Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. live at CKTZ 89.5 FM on the radio dial, or on the World Wide Web at CortezRadio.ca. Reruns are on Saturday from 5 to 7. Or you can tune in to new ideas anytime by listening to past classes and podcasts at folkyou.ca. Thank you for joining us today in a special pre-recorded Folk University 101 class. This class happened in person at the Linnea Education Center, back when we could meet in person. In the Brain 101, Haley Newell, registered therapeutic counselor, helps demystify the fascinating and complex human brain, central organ to the human nervous system. In the Brain 101, all of us learners are invited to start with learning the four key threats to the brain: what they are, how this relates to your day-to-day life, and why it's useful to understand them. This was a fascinating class. We were able to provide this to all of you curious neighbors near and far, thanks to the help of Emmanuel McKenty, sound engineer, and the team at Cortez Community Radio, 89.5 FM. CortezRadio.ca. That includes Sean and Howie. Thank you all. If you love this class as much as those who attended, you can send questions and comments for Haley to us at the letter U at Folk U, like Folk University, but just Folk U.ca, and we'll pass them on. Or you can find one of her other talks at Folk U.ca. Where she also discusses the nervous system 101, the powerful potential of play, and more. To start, I'm going to invite you all just to take a deep breath. I'm not going to get you to meditate or anything like that, so don't worry. But just taking a deep breath and noticing where you are, and taking in for a moment that you're here with a group of people, some of whom you are probably really familiar with. We're it's a small community. We mostly know each other here, so there's probably a sense of familiarity. So just taking a moment to to recognize that. And the next thing that I want to say is that um, this is my very first talk ever. So, um, and I'm really excited about it. It's something I've been wanting to do for a long time, uh, and it um, is really scary for me, <laughs> um, and uh, very exciting as well. And um, so I just want to name. I'm a little bit nervous, and uh, put that out there. 
and uh, to also say thank you very much for showing up for my very first talk. You guys will now always be associated for me with the very first talk that I ever gave. And um, that's a really great segue into our learning objectives for the day. The first one being that the brain <clears throat> is an association-making machine. So this is the first thing we're going to talk about. The brain is an association-making machine. Then we're going to talk a little bit about whoops, two, uh, the nervous system and how it relates to your brain. It is uh, a whole other talk. But these things, as Mando was saying, are so interconnected. Um, it's impossible, in a way, to talk about one without talking a little bit about the other. <clears throat> so the brain is an association-making machine, the nervous system. Then we're going to go over the hand model of the brain. I'm going to teach you the hand model of the brain. And then, whoops. And lastly, I'm going to talk to you guys about the four <clears throat> threads to the brain. And this is coming from a therapeutic perspective. <clears throat> Noticing that my writing is not as neat when I'm doing it quickly. Okay, so the brain is an association-making machine, the nervous system, the hand model, and the fourth rest of the brain. Okay, so when we're born, <clears throat> we come into the world, and we're just taking in all kinds of sensory data all the time. And there's, I can't remember the statistic right now, but we're taking in, it's like billions of bits of sensory data. It's tons. And we can't actually, um, we can't actually be aware of all of it all at once. It's so much. But essentially, when, you're, when you come into the world, everything's coming in through the body. You're taking in light, you're taking in sound, you're taking in textures and feelings and sensations, and uh, different sets of sensory information begin to get associated with each other. So in a way, we are all these sets of sensory information interacting with each other and interacting with the world. And so, for example, mom becomes a set of sensory information. She has a certain smell. She has a certain feel. She's warm at this time. She's cold at this time. She sounds like this. It's all this kind of sensory information. And dad, too, he's all this. He's a certain set of sensory data. An apple, you know, when we start to eat food, it's a set of information. It has a color. It has a texture. It has a taste. It's, it's all this sensory information. So that's all coming in through our system, through our senses. <clears throat> So then, as we're going, okay. So then, as we go through life, we meet challenges, and I would, I would say that life is really mostly a set of challenges that we're meeting and responding to and reacting to, and then moving on to the next one and then the next one, and learning how to be with those challenges. <clears throat> so. We're meeting all these different challenges. And depending on how we feel about that challenge, depending on whether we think that we can do something about that challenge or whether we feel like we can't do something about that challenge, we're going to have a different nervous system response to that challenge. 
And that response, in our, it's going to have a really physical sensation in our body. And then that gets linked to these sets of sensory data that I was talking about. So, for example, <clears throat> mom is this set of sensory data. And then one day mom yells, maybe. And so then you have a certain response in your body to that, to that new, to that challenge, to that information. And so then there's an association that's made. Mom is this set of sensory data. This thing happened. This loud noise happened. I had this response in my body. Maybe it was a startled response. So there's an association that's made. So <clears throat> that gets us into talking about the nervous system. I'm just going to pause here and see if anyone has any questions, if that's making sense for the most part so far. Okay, so getting back into the nervous system, we're, we're moving now from the association-making machine, that is our brain, into talking a bit about the nervous system. So the way I'm going to frame it for you, to get, for you guys today is around this idea of challenges. And the nervous system is pretty complex, it's very complex. And again, as Amanda was saying at the beginning, a lot of the information on this, it's, it's really new and it's changing. So. This is, I feel, like a kind of a simple way of framing it uh, that's applicable in your daily life. So as you're going through your life, you need a challenge. And you're going to have a certain response to that challenge based on whether you think, whether your body thinks or whether you have a perception that you can do something about it or you can't do something about it. So for example, say you, um, you are, well, we'll go back to the to the to the mom example. Sorry, moms. <laughs> say, say you're having a fight with mom, and mom yells. So you're going to have a response to that, and you're either going to go into your sympathetic nervous system response, or you're going to go into your parasympathetic nervous system response. These are the two branches of your autonomic, think automatic, involuntary nervous system. There's two main branches. There's a lot more that we can get into about that, but for now, what I really want you to just think about is you have a revving up system, your sympathetic nervous system, and you have a calming down branch of your nervous system, your parasympathetic nervous system. So in this example of mom yelling, you're going to have a response of, oh my gosh, I can do something about this challenge, or oh my gosh, I can't do anything about this challenge. So let's say you feel like mom's yelling and you have a sense that you can do something about this challenge, your body's going to mobilize, you're going to move into the, um, you're going to rev up, you're going to move into the sympathetic nervous system, and you're going to do something. You're going to fight back, and you're going to yell back at mom, and you're going to get into a really big fight. Or, perhaps, you feel like, I can't do anything about this challenge. Oh my gosh, mom yells all the time. I'm going to get it. Oh my gosh. And then you maybe go into your parasympathetic response, which is a collapsing response. You can't do anything about it. You're shutting down. And the two, these two branches, it's in a lot of how it's talked about, it's talked about as being two very separate things, but they really do flip-flop and they interact with each other significantly. And it can change. You can go from one to the other. So you may have all had an experience where you're engaging in a challenge, like the fight with mom, for example, and at first you thought, yes, I can totally do something about this. 
and mobilizing to fight back. We're yelling and we're fighting and we're having this whole thing. And then maybe dad comes, or maybe a sibling comes, and then they're, you're having a fight with everybody and they're ganging up on you, say. And you're like, oh my gosh, I thought I could do something about this challenge, but I really can't. And then you go into the collapse. So you can, within one situation, you can go back and forth between the two quite easily. Okay, so let me just check in with myself here on where I am. Yes, okay. So, does that make sense so far? You have these two branches of the nervous system. You have a challenge. You're gonna mobilize to do something if you feel like you can. You're gonna fight or you're gonna run. Or you have a perception, you feel like, I can't do anything about this challenge. You go into more of a shutdown. <clears throat> so, from here we're gonna move into the hand model of the brain, third thing. And so I'm gonna invite you guys all to take your hand, whichever hand you want, and go like this. Okay, so here we have our hand model, beginning with the wrist. This is your brain stem. This is your reptilian brain, the oldest part of your brain. And then next you've got your thumb. This is gonna represent the limbic system of the brain. If you can, take your thumb, tuck it against your palm. It rests on the cortex, which is your whole hand. And then your whole hand folds down over top of the limbic system of the brain. This whole thing is the cortex, and we're gonna talk mostly today about the prefrontal cortex, which rests right on top of the limbic. Can yes. You speak up a little? Yes. You go, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So the whole hand, the, the hand represents the entire cortex. We're going to talk mostly about the front part, which is the prefrontal cortex. You guys can keep. You guys can put your hands down if you want. I'm going to walk through. I'm going to walk through it. So, as I was saying, this is your brain stem, your reptilian brain. This is the oldest part of your brain. You can think reptile, dinosaur, long time ago. So when you're born, this part of the brain is the most lit up. It's the most active. You, the, your, your brain, all the parts of your brain are active when you're born, but this is the most lit up. There's the most activity here. Um, what else do I want to say about the reptilian brain? It is um, really, really good at keeping us safe. It's where... Um, it's responsible for the fight, flight, collapse responses that I was talking about earlier. It relates closely to the nervous system. And um, it's kind of a rigid, it's kind of rigid in the way it operates and compulsive. But again, really, really good at keeping us safe. And, for, and territory, territorial yes, awareness. Totally, it's like animal brain. It's very much our animal brain. And then moving up, we have our limbic system of the brain. There's a whole bunch going on in the limbic system of the brain. There's a whole bunch of different parts. For today, I'm just going to mostly talk about, I am just going to talk about your hippocampus and your amygdala. They reside in the limbic system of the brain. The borders around all these parts are really, they're not clear. I've heard, I've read in some areas that the hippocampus is part of the amygdala. I've heard in other places that they're separate. So the borders around these things are nebulous and they're just closely related, talking to each other in here. And um, 
the limbic system, this is, uh, this is, this is um, early mammals. I'm just going to go to my notes here and keep me on track. Um, hmm. Right, that's what I wanted to say. This wires up more around age two to three. Uh, there's more activity happening in here. And it's governing mostly our emotions and our memories. And that's a, it's, a simplistic, it's a simplistic way of breaking it down, but it's, it's enough to have a kind of a basic understanding of what's happening is this is housing our emotions, the amygdala, and our memory, the hippocampus. And this part of the brain is also responsible for assessing whether or not we should fight or run or collapse based on what's happening with the reptilian brain and the nervous system. So, taking a break from the, from the hand model, going back to the challenge conversation, we were going through life, we made a challenge, and um, we feel like, say we're at the grocery store and somebody's starting to yell at us because they don't want to pay five cents for a plastic bag or something like that. Um, we are, we're having a challenge and somebody's yelling at us and it's a woman, say. And so our brain and our nervous system is looking at this and it's like, okay, this is threatening, somebody's yelling. And so the nervous system, the brain stem, is like, is starting to mobilize. We have a challenge here. Can I do something about this or can I not do something about this? And it's feeling like I can do something about it. I want to run away from it, and it's going to send all that information up to the amygdala and the hippocampus. And they're going to have a little conversation with each other, and they're going to be like, wow, okay, we're getting all this information from the brainstem. The brainstem is saying that we should probably run away from this situation. And they're checking out with the hippocampus. Hey, hippocampus, is this, like, it, should we do that? Is this something that we recognize from the past? And the hippocampus goes back in its set of associations, like I was mentioning from before, and it's wondering, mm, do I know this? Have I experienced this before? And it's maybe going to find an association from the past of like, yep, there was a woman who yelled at me a lot, and it felt like this in my body when that happened. That's familiar. Yep, we should run. So they have this little conversation, and they determined, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna go with that, we're gonna run. And so you can kind of get a sense that this is really rooted in uh, the past, like what we've come to learn, what we've come to know, what we're familiar with, and it's, a, it's an unconscious process that's happening here. It's, it's really quick, it's happening really fast, and it's based on these associations that we've made, what we know, and so in this particular situation, maybe you do leave the scene you're overwhelmed, you leave that challenge based on, um, on what you come to know. So, that's the relationship between the brain stem and the reptilian brain. And that brings us to the prefrontal cortex. So again, the hand is representing the whole, the whole cortex. And we're gonna talk about the prefrontal cortex right here in the very, in the very front. <clears throat> so, we share this with other mammals like dogs. It's part of why we can have that really sweet 
personal experience with dogs, and there's that there's that sense of recognition and familiarity. Um, this part of the brain evolved really in the integration of all of these parts, in the integration of the brain stem with the limbic system, the cortex. So it's an it's an integrative <laughs> part of the brain. And this part of the brain is responsible for your executive functioning, your ability to think ahead, your ability to plan, make decisions, um, it, abstract thought, language, um, what else, what else, what else? Being able to hold uh, more than one possibility in your head at one time. That's all happening in the prefrontal cortex. And um, uh, yes, also human language and imagination. That's all associated with the prefrontal cortex. So it's really, really cool. It's a brilliant part of the brain. And it's flexible and um, very related to folk and what we're doing here because it's, it's capable of um, incredible learning. It has incredible learning capacity. It's very flexible, very malleable. What do you mean it's flexible in this respect? It can change. It can change and adapt. This part of the brain, your brain stem, is not as, it's not as flexible. It's really just trying to keep you alive. <clears throat> so, oh yeah, and the, the interesting, one of the interesting things about the prefrontal cortex is this part of the brain is not fully functional until you're about 25 years old. Yay! Yay! <laughs> so it takes a really long time to be able to fully do all those things, all of that thinking ahead and planning and this is a huge thing to know if you're a parent of young children, because this whole thing is, is just not, it's just not happening yet, it's not wired up. There's a little bit going on, but it's really not their primary modus operandi. Um, okay. All right, and the other, the other part that I wanted you guys to take away from this is that when we're perceiving those challenges, if we perceive a challenge that's really overwhelming, we get into a big nervous system response around, for example, um, let's say something was overwhelmingly scary. This part of the brain goes totally offline. You can think about it as flipping your lid. It goes totally offline. So you're, you're, you're having a survival response to the challenge, and this part of the brain doesn't work anymore. And so it's impossible in those moments of being really, really stimulated, I've got to run, I've got to fight, to engage in the, in the prefrontal cortex activities. If you are perceiving a challenge that's within your window of comfort, this part of the brain can stay online and you can feel that arousal and you can still make decisions. But we do have experiences where we get totally flooded with the nervous system response and this part of the brain goes offline. So it's a good thing to remember for um, arguments. If you're having an argument with someone and you're getting really, really into it, um, an interesting statistic from my teacher was that after 20 minutes of arguing when it's just like total, everybody's triggered and it's just back and forth, after 20 minutes it actually becomes toxic to the brain because you get this flood of stress uh, these uh, stress chemicals that come into the brain. And you're not actually capable at that moment anymore of making any kind of rational decision, any sort of 
uh, conclusion, you're not really capable because this part of the brain stops working properly. So it's just a good thing to know that the next time you're kind of in one of those situations that you have permission to say, oh my gosh, it's been like 20 minutes and this is toxic. This is toxic to the brain. So you can just stop and take a break. Um, okay. Yes. Um, I learned that at night when you're supposed to be asleep, mm -hmm. um, that your brain doesn't function uh, totally as during the day, of course, mm -hmm. either. And mm -hmm. that when a problem comes up, like, oh my god, I have this uh, challenge tomorrow, or, or this operation is coming up, or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, and some worries can end up between, say, 3 and 5, or some hours in the early morning, mm -hmm. your brain just doesn't function. So well, I don't know as much about the certain times of the morning, though I have heard that for people who are meditators, that that period between like 3 and 5 a.m. is apparently a very prime time for meditation because uh, it, the brain is quieter. So I have heard that, but in relation to what you're speaking of, in terms of the timing, I'm not as familiar. Um, but what it does relate to that might, that might be uh, relevant is that <clears throat> there's a lot of talk around the nervous system right now. Um, and it's wonderful, and it's great that we're starting to learn more and more about it. But uh, something that I've noticed is that there's a bit of a thread in the liter in the language sometimes about regulation. Like you've probably maybe heard this word regulation, having a regulated nervous system. Has, have you guys heard that? Mm -hmm. You've heard that? Yeah. Um, and there's a bit of a sense in some of the things that you can read about regulation meaning calm. And so that's a myth that I just want to bust for you guys. Regulated doesn't necessarily mean calm. It can mean that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. And we're also not actually looking for a regulated nervous system all the time. This um, dance that I've been talking about in terms of we meet a challenge, this happens, we get activated, or we collapse, and then we move on. Our nervous system is very much designed to do this. It's designed to get dysregulated, and it's designed to go back into regulation. And we are born being able to get dysregulated. We're not born being able to get regulated. We learn that from our primary caregivers. So, what we, so we don't want to be in a regulated state all the time. You needed to get a little bit dysregulated, a little bit activated to get out of bed in the morning, this morning, and to get here, to drive here. You needed a little bit of that get up and go from your, um, <clears throat> from the autonomic nervous system to do that. What we want is for our nervous system to be able to get revved up and charged up when it needs to, and then to be able to come back down into that parasympathetic place when we need to rest eat and digest our food properly and sleep. And then again, come into the, okay, here we go, a little bit of activation, meet the challenge, and then let it go. The problem happens when we stay in the activated response all the time. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about that when we get into the threats to the brain and why we can end up being kind of locked in there. Yes. yes. I, I've gone to bed with a problem. Mm -hmm. 
and I woke up, woke up in the morning with a solution. Yay! That can happen. Yeah. Yeah, I do that sometimes where I, if I'm having trouble sleeping and I have something running through my head, I ask for the answer to come in the morning. And sometimes that happens, so that's cool. Thanks for sharing that. I'll get, come to you just a second, and I had a... Um, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit more then about what, about what, I mean, you just talked about it, but like what the definition of regulation is, because I feel like also when looking mm. around, I've heard a lot about regulation because we use it all the time now in relationship to our children. Mm -hmm. Oh, we need to help our children get more regulated, and mm -hmm. I think people basically are using it like, like, calm down. Could they just calm down? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally. So, um, what I think you're saying is that it is it like the, if we're going through these waves, mm -hmm. is that actually then regulation? Is that we're different, or regulation is just some part of that? Like, what is regulation? Then? Yeah, totally. Okay, I'm gonna come to that. What was your question? You spoke earlier about the 20 minutes of uh, mm -hmm. stressful situation and everything. Is there a standard like calm down time, or is that different for everybody before you can come back to like national thinking? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I would say that it is it's different for everybody, and it has to do with your resiliency, which is another word that we're hearing a lot about, which is um, that that curve that I was making with the here we go, we're getting activated and we're coming down. So the time that it takes you to go from getting activated and charged to coming back down, that's your resiliency. Your ability to come into the challenge, meet it, do what needs to be done, and then to come back down again. The, the ease and speed at which that happens is your resiliency, and that's different for everybody. Yeah. So coming to Amanda's question, regulation is such a good question. Um, I, I do, I, there's a couple ways to think about it. I, for me, I, I do think of a regulated nervous system as a nervous system that can do this, based on my learning with, uh, with, my, with my teachers, is this ability. But another way of thinking about it, and this is very much from the work of <clears throat> Lisa Dion and uh, Peter Levine and um, Dan Siegel, Pat Ogden, all the thinkers in somatic in the somatic therapy neuroscience world, and I can give you guys all kinds of people to look up if you're interested. But it's <clears throat> that it's this it's the ability to be with yourself in the experience as it's happening is what it means to be regulated. So you can actually be angry and regulated, and that's not something that you hear very often. Um, that also that also gets us into a conversation potentially around how um, there are certain states and emotions that we have labeled and associated with being not so great. You know, like anger is just not so great. And um, uh, yeah. But anger is actually a super healthy, super really, really important emotion. It's basically life force energy that is coming up through your body usually to create a boundary or save your life in some instances. So anger is really super important and it's our ability to be with that experience, with that Russian charge that comes and express it in a healthy way. So, um, so another way of thinking about it that's um, for people who practice mindfulness, 
Regulation is like a moment of mindfulness, being able, being aware of what you're doing as you're doing it, being with yourself as you are going through that. That's really more what regulation is. Um, oh, and I wanted to say something else about the kids. And I just lost it, darn it. Um, yeah, but a big thing uh, with with all of us, but I think especially with, with kids, is that we, we want to get to a point where we can hold these, uh, these, these surges of activation and these, you know, these moments of collapse. We want to be able to hold it. And the more that we can build the resiliency in our nervous system, um, the greater our capacity becomes to hold this emotion, then the, the more we go, this, this is quicker, this is easier. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. I'm just going to go. I just. Oh, right. Um, there was one more thing I wanted to say about the prefrontal cortex uh, before we move on to the threats to the brain. So, what, I was talking about how. If we get really flooded with a charge from our nervous system, this the prefrontal cortex goes offline. And I just wanted to put it out there. Why would that be super important for survival? Anyone? Yeah. Well, because if you were in a life and death situation, you would need all your energy not going to like problem solving in the future or yeah. those kinds of things, but to just getting you out of the situation. Exactly. That's exactly why. So. Yeah, if the tiger is in the woods and you meet the tiger, it's not going to be very helpful to go like, okay, well, I could go over the ridge and through the woods to grandmother's house we go, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, no, I, what's happening? There's a tiger. Can I fight it? Heck no, but I could probably run. And then everything in your body mobilizes to running. And anything that is not going to help you run as fast as you possibly can stops working. So that's the same if you go into like a full-on collapse response, which is like a playing dead response, your digestion stops wor working because if you're playing dead to try so that something doesn't eat you, uh, it doesn't matter if you can digest your food at that point, right? So our body, this system is like incredible when it comes to keeping us alive and those intense survival responses, those, like that still happens. You know, it's not the tiger, but it's like, you know, the, the car coming around the corner really fast or like the headlights coming around really bright in the dark. It's activating that very same system. Isn't, doesn't that release the, the, uh, the adrenaline in your system? Yes, totally. That's like when you hear about people who can lift cars off of people, that's like full-on adrenaline, crazy amounts of power and strength coming through so that you can save someone's life or your own life. Yeah, it's amazing. Okay, so I'm gonna move on to the threats to the brain. This is coming from a therapeutic perspective. And I just think it's just, an, again, like a really helpful frame for day-to-day -day life. Okay, and if it is easy or helpful, let me know, because I can write them down on the board. <clears throat> Okay, so the first one 
is physical and emotional. There's physical and emotional threats to the brain. We've spent most of today talking about that so far. It's like you meet the challenge, someone's yelling, you mobilize to meet that challenge. That can be a physical threat, uh, emotional threat. You know, um, you have a fight with your boss at work. These are the things we've been talking about today. Physical and emotional threats. That's pretty straightforward based on what we've talked about. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, and we touched on this a little bit. I'm going to kind of sit. No, it won't because of the microphone. It's okay. Okay. So. Can everybody still hear me if I sit? Okay. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> so the next threat to the brain, from a therapeutic standpoint, is the unknown. The unknown. We don't know what's going to happen. That's really hard for a lot of us to deal with. We know we come into a situation and we don't know. But it's also kind of interesting because if the unknown is actually purely just that, it's the unknown, then it's unknown. We don't know. Like we literally don't know. It's full of possibility. So I'm just curious, based on what we've been talking about today, why would the unknown be hard for us, do you think? It might involve danger. It might involve danger, yep. We have nothing to associate it to. Yeah, the associations. So that conversation that was happening between the reptilian brain and the limbic system of the brain. The hippocampus checking in for all those associations and seeing if there's something. So for example, you get invited to a party and you don't know, you're not going to know anybody at this party. It's like a total unknown. You don't know the house, you don't know the person who's hosting it, you don't know anything. So it's a total unknown. But maybe way, way back, you got, you went to a party and something super embarrassing happened or nobody talked to you or your car broke down on the way or whatever. So there's going to be this set of associations and in the moment of, hey Karina, do you want to go to this party? You know, you're not necessarily going to remember consciously like, oh my gosh, that's really scary for me because of this party a long time ago, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you might, but you might not remember that so consciously, but, but in your system is this set of associations. So <clears throat> this is why, this is, a, this is a major reason why the unknown can provoke anxiety. So, yes? Can it work the other way around, too? That if you know something, it can provoke? No, the unknown, like, uh, provoke an emotion instead of uh, fear or anxiety. Oh yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, totally. This you can you can absolutely have the experience of the unknown being like, yeah, that's exciting and curious and it's full of possibility and potential. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's just something that can be threatening to the brain and scary. Yeah, so absolutely, totally. Okay, does anyone have any questions about that? Okay. The next thing, which is one of my very favorite things to talk about, is incongruency in the environment. Does anybody know what incongruency means? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And where are we on this? this oh, yeah, sorry. We're, we're in the four threats to the brain. Oh, okay. And I haven't written them down, but I, I can do that. I was just realizing that could be I, helpful. I, I guess I lost the, the handle of the brain or something. Oh, that's this. That was okay. when we were doing that. Yeah, thank you <laughs> sorry, for keeping us on track. No, 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 that's good. 
Um, yes, okay. So incongruency in the environment, this is huge. I would imagine that most, if not all of you, have had the experience of coming home, or you come into some space and your friend is there, or your partner is there, or your parents are there, and everything about everything in them, their body language, the feeling in the room, everything is like, oh man, something's really wrong. Something's really got so-and-so down. Something's really happening for Chris over there. And so you come up and you're like, Chris, what's wrong? And then Chris is like, I'm fine. Even though everything is telling you, Chris is totally not fine. And so then you're like, huh, says that he's fine, but it really doesn't seem true. So then you ask again, huh, eh, are you sure? Are you sure you're fine? Yeah, I'm totally fine. And so there's an incongruency, it doesn't match. What they're saying doesn't match what they are doing, the way that they sound, the way that their body is. And, and also your own, this I think is so, so important, your own internal feeling of what's happening around you. Um, this is really, really threatening for us. It's really, it's, it's, it's unsafe. And a lot of us as little beings, um, well, not necessarily a lot of us, but potentially as a young being, you can grow up in an environment where there might be addiction, there might be, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's as common now, but I know even in my mom's generation and my grandparents' generation, adoption was something still, like my grandfather didn't know that he was adopted until he was 40. So these kinds of things are, they're in the environment. And... Um, they're not being spoken of and addressed in, a, in an open, honest way. So there's an incongruency in the environment. <clears throat> and what can happen for young people, this, is a, this gets into a whole other topic that we could do a whole other talk on, and, and maybe we will, um, but young, young ones, when we're young, our survival is completely linked to our primary caregivers, right? Of course human babies are some of the most vulnerable mammals on the planet because we come into the world not fully, we're like not fully cooked. We're not like a giraffe that comes and can walk within a few minutes, etc. We're super, super vulnerable. We rely on our primary caregivers to keep us alive. So, <clears throat> and young ones are completely identified with, um, with their parents and especially mom. It takes a really long time for a child to fully develop their, a separate sense of self. It's actually not until around seven, eight years old where they really get, and it's still not something that they necessarily talk about consciously, but seven, eight, they start to really get, I'm a separate being, I, I'm not one and the same as mom. So <clears throat> when there's incongruency in the environment, the child will, um, they'll disconnect from their own internal knowing to align with their caregivers because it's connected to their sense of survival. So this is really, really important for us to know. Um, because then as we go on through life, um, if we have that disconnected sense of, um, if we're not connected to that own internal knowing, you know, that, get, that gets into, um, uh, we have an experience where we have a really clear gut reaction, but it's hard to listen to it because we kind of grew up learning like, oh, I can't really trust that because my survival is over there. So incongruency in the environment is huge. Anyone have any questions about that? 
it's kind of a lot. Yeah. Okay, and the last stretch of the brain that we're going to talk about are shoulds in your head. And I did it at the very beginning of this talk, so that's funny. Um, but shoulds in your head. So I'm going to just give you this little, I'm going to plant this little seed in your brain, which is that when you should yourself, you dysregulate yourself. Um, <clears throat> again, not necessarily a bad thing to get dysregulated. However, going back to what I was saying uh, to Karina is that the problem comes when we are staying in that overactivated state all the time. So when you're constantly shoulding yourself, should I should have. I should have done that better. I should have gone to that job interview. I should have. I should not have forgot to pick up the milk at the grocery store. So I never heard "should" used as a verb. Yeah, it's it's this is yes. It's a it's a little phrase just to help you remember the concept. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. Yeah. Um, so what's happening when you're when you're sh when you're shooting yourself <laughs> is that you are denying who you are in the present moment. There's a you're creating an internal sense of incongruity with yourself. So you, the body, mind, perceives that as a challenge, and we talked a lot about what happens when we perceive a challenge. Our nervous system goes into an activated state, and we decide decide. We mobilize to either run, fight, etc., or collapse. So that gets, there's an internal, um, yeah, you're creating an internal uh, incongruency with yourself. Because you're in opposition to what's really happening. So it's just, it's something I just want to invite you to take away <clears throat> and hold on and just notice for yourself when you say, I. Well, for example, here we go. I'll, I'll use myself as an example. <clears throat> I gave this talk on the brain at Folk U, and uh, it was really exciting, and it was my first talk ever, and I could have talked about regulation more. That's very different than I gave this talk on the brain, and I should have talked about regulation more. It lands really differently. I mean, can you kind of feel, like, just even hearing how it sounds? It's very different. One has more, uh, it's more compassionate. It's more, um, it's more, it's more aligned with possibility. And the other one's, like, it's kind of, ugh. It's disempowering. It's disempowering, exactly. So I just invite you to notice that as you go through the day. If you catch yourself saying, I should have, just... Try to take a moment to flip it into, I could have, and just see what happens. Just notice the change in your body. That's just an invitation. Um, okay. Okay, so we're coming to the end. And the last thing I wanted to say was, <clears throat> so we've talked about the four threats to the brain. Going all the way back to the beginning of this talk, do you remember what I did in relation to the four threats to the brain? You mentioned that I was going to talk about it. Say that again. You mentioned that you would talk about it later. Talk about the four threats later? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that is really close to one of the things that I did. You should totally yourself. on the round. I did shit myself. Yeah. Going okay. into an unknown. Say it again. Like you were, you were at the beginning of the talk. You acknowledged that this is kind of an unknown. Yes. Yes, totally. So the first thing I invited you guys all to do is I invited you to take a breath. Just notice that you're here at FOQ. There's people here you're familiar with that you probably know. There's maybe a sense of comfort there. So I address the first threat, which is physical safety in the environment. Just trying to give you a bit of a felt sense of here we are all together. Breathing is one of the most regulating things that you can do. It's one of the easiest things to do to bring yourself into the present moment. It's a very important tool. So that was the first thing I did. The second thing that I did was I attempted to make the unknown known by telling you what we were going to talk about. And the third thing I did was I attempted to bring myself into a state of congruency and therefore build trust by being authentic with you and telling you this is my very first talk, I'm not an expert, I'm a little nervous, all that stuff. And right, I tried to unship myself <laughs> by saying I'm not an expert, but I did ship myself when, when I uh, talked about how I should have titled the talk. So anyway, I did that. So. That's my presentation on the brain, yes, Wilson. But when you did mention your own background, do you have a psychology background or a philosophy background? Or what, what is your background that gives you the qualification to talk about this? I am a therapist, and I am mostly a, I mostly work with children. I am a play therapist, I work with children. My background in therapy is somatic therapy, so working with the body, brain, continuum primarily. Although Wilson, it is folk university, that's so great. even if she had no degree, we would still want her here. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so thank you. That is my talk on the brain for today. Thank you so much for coming. And I just want to invite any questions anybody has. And I also would love to hear if anyone, if there's a topic related to attachment, regulation, the nervous system, Anything like that that you would like to learn more about, I'd love to hear. Sometimes when you get hyper aroused, it's helpful to move the body to get the energy out so you can say, okay, we're having a fight, I'm gonna go for a walk, and you go have a brisk walk. Um, jumping, dancing, all of that kind of stuff to get energy out of the body is really helpful. Then, if you're trying to come back down into a more, if you're trying to come out of the hyper response, um, deep breathing is super, super huge. Um, um, making contact with yourself, so like putting your feet on the floor, rubbing your feet, grabbing your, these are your self-containment muscles in your thighs and up your arms. So just taking a moment to feel, okay, where's my body? Where is my body in space? My body's here. I can feel my feet on the floor. I can feel my arms underneath my hands. And then taking a moment to connect in with your senses. 
I can see that there's lights over there. There's wood in the paneling of the ceiling. I can hear the rain. Um, I, there's some red over there. So checking in with your environment, orienting to your environment. Um, uh, listening to calm music. Um, you were talking about a fight, so this wouldn't really be applicable, but cuddling and having safe physical contact is very regulating. Um, some people, if you, weighted blankets are becoming really popular. These are blankets that have um, like pieces of, I don't actually know what it is. It's like metal or something to make them really heavy so that you have this sense of containment in your body. That's huge. Um, I talked about like running, jumping, spinning, rolling on around on the floor, like literally getting on the floor and rolling so that you're making contact with your body against things. <clears throat> Eating can be really regulated. Um, I have a whole long list of things which I am happy to share. And just add, I saw this research once um, about this, and they said that reading and storytelling are some of the most regulating um, examples that we have, like up there, like exceeding meditation for some people. Mm -hmm. And I've been trying, practicing that for me, reading is very um, calming when I'm in a heightened state. It only takes like five minutes or so. Yeah. yeah. It's really like, sorry, I'll come right back to you. It's, it's, it's starting to gain an awareness of things that you can do for yourself that help you come back to yourself is really what it's about. So it's a little different for everybody and sometimes it takes a while. And it also takes a while to learn, to notice, oh my gosh, I'm like totally dysregulated right now. I'm, or I can't feel my body right now. I'm, I'm not here, like I, I've literally, I've gone somewhere else. Or you catch it after. It's like, whoa. It's like what happens sometimes when people are driving and they're spaced right out. It's like they're not in their body. So sometimes it just takes a bit of time to notice, okay, yeah, these are the things that get me really activated or they, ca they cause me to leave, me leave my body. And these are the things that really help me come back. Yeah. I'm sure Haley would be willing to answer a few more questions if you would like to flutter with those. And I I'm definitely think we need to bring her back to talk about a couple things, including maybe resiliency. Yeah, I think um, we'll talk. And please don't forget, as you're leaving, to sign your name um, and give me your email address if you want to eventually be added to the email list. And then at 4 o'clock, we're having a creative conversation. Don't forget in this space about what could a... a sustainable, deeply adapted, wonderful, beautiful future of Cortez look like. It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring my mind back? This is Manda O'Fox Gillespie. Thank you for tuning in to another Folk You Talk. Folk University is the only university where nobody ever graduates. You've got a lifetime. Why not learn something new or share what you know at folkyou.ca? For making lots of money and lots of things to say that only I think are funny. I got yesterday's lunch and today's sore tummy. Tomorrow's diet, but oh boy, it was yummy. It's embarrassing. All the
the swans and the snow geese and the rugged beaches where the surf rings. This place we all live in this life that it gives us. Just giving them, giving them, giving. This place we all live in this life that it gives us. It's a good thing, it's a good thing to have friends who make your heart sing. It's a good thing, it's a good thing to have friends who make your heart sing. Who lift you up by the scruff, not afraid to call your bluff. Who've got your back, who've got your front, who've got your nerve. Ticket hit the wicket, knock the ball right out of the park. Who are actually always on your side, your real, real home team. It's a good thing, it's a good thing to have friends who make your heart sing. It's a good thing, it's a good thing to have friends who make your heart. Be like a living mirror Showing reflections of things in you That you really ought to see Who help you laugh instead of cry Not get identified I'm not these thoughts or these emotions I, I am I
must be green My flowers they would bloom And then I'd go to seed But I am me And I don't know yet what to be Amen. 